So let's hear God's word being read to us. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it, sorry, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And then Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 21 and following is a challenging little passage. The whole Sermon on the Mount is incredibly challenging, but uh, it reminded me of a book that I saw in a charity shop just recently, uh, The Most Famous and Best Insults in History. Uh, I picked it up. I didn't buy it because I'm tight, but I uh, I picked it up and I found these two uh, customers that uh, one of whom you will know, I'm sure, Mr. Winston Churchill, He had quite a wit and quite a tongue, not always kind. The other one was Lady Astor. And one of their most famous quips or quabbles between the two of them went like this. Lady Astor said this to Mr. Churchill. Mr. Churchill, she said in a more uh, higher voice, Mr. Churchill, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. Mr. Churchill, not wanting to be outdone, said this. Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I would drink it. Relationships can be very funny, can't they? They can be really funny. Uh, if I was your uh, wife, I'd give, poison you, and if I, well, if I was your husband, I would drink it quickly. Um, relationships can be very, very funny. But this little passage is not funny. It's incredibly surgical from the lips of Jesus, written 2,000 years ago, and it's all about relationships. Most of our comedies, if you notice on TV, um, are about relationships or relationship uh, frustration or even relationship breakdown. People make humor out of that. It can be humorous. It can be funny, but not if you're in the middle of it. Not if it's, if it's your experience. It's not funny at all. Relationships are a great joy. They can be a great burden. They can cause a great humor. They can also provide great strife. Relationships are really hard work, but all of us are in the midst of relationships. 
And then Jesus says these words in verse 21 of Matthew 5 about the importance of relationships and, and brings in a quotation from the Old Testament and says in the next element of life that we're looking at, if you are a Christian, if you've become a Christian, like Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, if you recognize your poverty of spirit, you will start to live relationships in a completely different way to the Pharisees. Notice that, verse 20. There is a righteousness that is far higher, a right standing with me, a way of living in the world that is far higher, far more godly than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious people who knew the Bible, who loved the Bible, who cherished the Bible, but didn't know God in their hearts. They didn't live in a personal relationship with him. He was remote to them. He was far off from them. They loved him, but they didn't love other people. The grace of God did not come into their hearts. And so they, like us, when it came to relationships, they were bothered by it. They were frustrated in relationships. And it's no laughing matter when you're in a relationship that's hard. And Jesus, in Matthew 5, lays down this principle that I want us to think about and build upon from Matthew 5, 21, with this quotation about murder. And you're thinking, what has that got to do with relationships? I think it has a lot. And this is the principle I want us to think about for all relationships, whether they're in your family, whether it's a blood relationship, if it's at work, if it's a friend on a different continent, maybe South Africa. Wherever this relationship may be, here's the principle that Jesus says, I believe. Lovelessness is murder. Lovelessness is murder. If you don't love someone says Jesus, it can be the equivalent of murder. Let's get into it. This is the heart of relationship. Look at verses 21 to 22. Here's the first point, the heart of relationship with lovelessness is murder. Look at sentence 21 of Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I'll put it to you that if you listen carefully to the lips of Jesus, the words that he says from these sentences, it will act like a surgical ten blade. It will act like a scalpel. Okay? It gets deeper and deeper as Jesus gets closer and closer to our hearts. A lifestyle of love, says Jesus, starts not with lovelessness, but with a heart that is full of love and sees your needs as second to the needs of others. A heart that's full of love looks at people in the eye, never down upon them. That's what Jesus is saying, sentence 21. Whenever there is a prohibition, a negative in the Bible, that's always an implicit positive as well. So sentence 21, you've heard it said, do not murder. The opposite of saying do not murder is every life that God has made is precious. Therefore, you're not to take a life that God has given. Every infinitely precious person is made in the image of God. That's their inherent value. It doesn't matter if the world or society says they are lesser because they have some disability. God says, every single person is treasured by me. It doesn't matter if they're old and infirm and society will be better off, some people say, to get rid of a certain age people. Or if they're so vulnerable and they're so little and they're still in the womb and society says, get rid of them if they're not a convenience to you. Every single person is of infinite precious value 
because they bear the image of God, says Jesus. And that means no one can be looked down upon. No one can be abused. No one can be ignored. No human is to be used just as a means to an end to ourselves. And then Jesus, like a surgeon, begins to get closer and closer, not to ethics, but to our hearts. Verse 21, Jesus says, first of all, one of three things. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. Notice Jesus does not say it is written. When Jesus quotes exactly from the Bible, word for word, we've seen this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, 22, chapter 2, verse 15, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, 2, 23, it is written. It's a quote, maybe from a prophet, maybe from a psalm. But Jesus does not say it is written, quotation marks. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. And he says that again and again in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 33, chapter 5, verse 38, chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard it said, you've heard it said. And when Jesus speaks in this way, he's saying, this is how your religious leaders have spoken about. This is how they've interpreted the Old Testament law. And I want to explain to you what it really means. So your religious leaders, your Jewish teachers, they have said that if somebody doesn't murder someone, that means that they are, if you don't do it physically, that means you're not guilty of it. If you do it physically, then you're guilty of it. But Jesus says, no, no, that's far too superficial an understanding. I want to go deeper. I want to go to your heart. Look at what he says in sentence 21. You've heard that it said you shouldn't kill anyone, you shouldn't murder. But I tell you this, anyone who is angry with his brother is guilty. Anyone who's even angry with his brother is guilty of murder. You're thinking, Jesus, give me a break. It's a sunny February. That happens rarely enough. But Jesus, in sentence 22, chooses a word that means to swell up. To swell up. It's like one of those Dr. Pimple Popper programs when they've got a boil on their back and it's of gargantuan proportion. It starts off small, but it grows and grows and grows and it's gross. But here is Jesus, and he's not talking about a pimple on someone's back. He's talking about your heart. And he says, anyone, anyone who's had that experience of anger welling up in their heart like a storm, you are guilty of murder. Anyone whose uh, heart has that anger that is simmering like gravy when you're making it on a hob and you don't want to do it too high or you'll burn it. You just do it low and it just bubbles like a soup maybe on the hob as well. If you've had that experience of anger in your heart that simmers slowly and the temperature increases until an explosion is caused, Jesus says that is what the law is talking about. The slow burn, that's literally what the word means that Jesus chooses for anger. He could have chosen about four words, but he chooses a word for slow, increasing, dwelling meditation on a person or a thing. It's not an explosion of anger when someone just doesn't want to uh, say anything, and then they just let it out and they throw a plate across a, wall, a room to a wall and it shatters, and they're not Greek. It's just that anger that builds up dramatically and quickly. Jesus says, no, not that. I'm talking about low resentment, the slow burn. Temper, flaring, exploding, throwing plates, that's wrong as well. But Jesus says anyone that has the slow burn of anger, that's resentment, that grows into bitterness, 
That's the anger that I'm talking about. And at that point, I need to put my hand up and say, I've done that many a time about a person that's wounded me with a word or sent a letter or an email or someone that's uh, hurt one of my kids. And, and you just feel responsible for that. And resentment turns to bitterness that turns to anger. Jesus goes closer still. Sentence 22. Anyone who says raka. Anyone who says raka. No, I don't know if I've ever said the word raka. Rack off, maybe, but raka is slightly different. It means you nobody. You're a nobody to me. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And so this is a direct quote from the lips of Jesus. It means you're a nobody. Jesus is getting closer to our hearts now like a surgeon. He's not saying if you break the commandment, you shall not murder. And that's far away. He's getting closer. He says, even if you're malicious to someone. No, not if you're malicious. Even if you're indifferent to someone. Even if you roll your eyes at someone. Even if you uh, just think that you're better than someone. You look down on them. Even if you neglect someone, if you avoid someone, you go through a different door at church to avoid someone. I know people have done that. If you look through someone, because you don't want to speak to them, you want to speak to the person behind them. You're not giving them your attention. You're looking for the next conversation that's going to begin. Even if you just don't care about the person, Jesus says you've broken this commandment. And I've done that too. This is the, this is the kernel. This is the seed form of hate, indifference indifference. Then there's another level, sentence 22. Anyone who says you fool. So we go from eyes looking through people, now you're talking about the tongue Jesus. Jesus says this is the power of the tongue. You can murder someone's reputation with your tongue. This powerful muscle between the teeth. It's so powerful. And Jesus, having said the word raka, this Aramaic word, Actually, it's made into Greek. It's the word moros. And you can guess what that means. You moron. When you speak like that of someone, that's not about indifference. That's the power of the tongue to write someone off. They're a moron. What are they thinking? There's nothing between their ears. You're slandering someone. You moron. And these three different ways of expanding and getting closer to our experience, this commandment, You've heard it said, verse 21, do not murder, and you think it's remote. You think if you don't do it physically with your hands that you've never killed anyone. And then Jesus says, you have, you have, and you have. It gets closer and closer to our hearts and our experience. And Jesus, layer by layer, is unpicking the sin, the rebellious action of scorn. You know what scorn is? Scorn is where murder begins. When you say, you're less important to me. I'm going to cross the road from you. You don't deserve an invitation to my house. That's what leads to lack of love. It's scorn. Looking down on someone because of their heritage or their money or lack of money, their employment or lack of employment, their ability or lack of ability in something. You scorn someone. And that's the heart of lovelessness. One of the main differences between a Christian and a religious person is that they understand the inward nature of sin. One of the signs that you've become a Christian is that you understand Matthew 5, verse 3. That's where it all begins. Blessed is the poor in spirit. You know that you have nothing to offer to God apart from your own sin. Sin is not out there. 
It's not like mud that you get on your knee and then you can wash it off. That's not what rebellious against the maker is. Sin is, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. We're lawbreakers and we're lawmakers, says Vaughan Roberts, very helpfully. And a Christian sees that sin is inward in its nature. Jesus says something quite critical at this point. Look at what a murderer is. What's the difference between a murderer and a grumpy person? What's the difference between a murderer and you? It's not that they just do stuff out there. It's in here. The source is the same. The heart is the same. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, could see this really clearly. He was an upright and upward standing member of the community. He knew his Bible back to front and front to back. But he did some terrible things before Jesus rescued him. Then in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this. He says, I am the chief, or I'm the worst of sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save rebels, of which I am the worst. He's not just using hyperbole. He's not just exaggerating. He knows his own heart so well because the Spirit of God has shown him his own heart so well with a spotlight. No corner is left unturned. And when he sees the depth of his own sinner rebellion, he says, I'm the worst of sinners. I can measure up against anyone else you like, and I'm worse than them. He's saying a little bit like uh, the acorn and the oak tree. Inside an acorn that you can hold in a child's hand, there is the capacity not just for one oak tree. If you think about it, as large as an oak tree can get, there is the capacity for a forest. Because from one acorn can come an oak tree, and from one oak tree can come thousands of acorns and thousands of other oak trees, and so the cycle continues. The difference between a murderer and me is not very much at all. I have the same capacity of sin, like an acorn that can give birth to an oak tree of sin. And so have you. And if you don't think you have, can I say humbly, I don't think you know yourself very well. One degree of grace can separate a murderer physically from a murderer just by words of speech. It's not a difference between him and her, between one of quantity, but one of quality. That's what Jesus is saying here. The only difference between me and the worst criminals in the world is one of quantity, not quality. And a Christian is someone who can see that. And so they look everyone in the eye. They have compassion on people. They are humble of spirit. They don't look down on anyone or they shouldn't do. No condescending spirit, only compassion, says the Christian. The difference between you and me is just one degree of God's grace. The only thing an acorn seed needs to grow is the right conditions, doesn't it? It needs warmth and it needs some soil and it needs some rainwater. And I have the capacity in my heart to do terrible things, and I've done some terrible things, made some bad decisions in my life, and maybe you have too. But if you're not yet a Christian, you'll find it very hard to look, or to not look down on people. You'll find it very hard to be humble towards people because your self-image will not be based on Jesus' grace and righteousness. It will be based on your own record. And that means for your record to be thought well of, you need to look down on someone. You'll be looking up to someone, you'll be looking down on other people. You'll find it very hard to do that if you're not yet a Christian because your righteousness, your your record is based on your works and your attainments on what you've done. But a Christian can say, 
I've made an absolute mess of my life and I need a rescuer and his name is Jesus. And that not only restores me vertically between myself and my maker, but also horizontally. I don't look down on anybody. Am I a murderer? Yes, I am. (laughs) Do I harbor grudges? Yes, I have. Am I indifferent to other people? Sadly, yes, I am. And that's why I need God's grace every single day. I'm not acceptable to God by anything other than the righteousness of Jesus. And when you see that, that Jesus took my punishment that I deserve, that's the gospel. He suffered in my place. He suffered for my sake. And that's why a Christian can look every single person in the eye and not down on anybody else. Gives you a radically new self-image. That's what Kirsten was longing for Ruby to understand. To not be defined by the world, but to see that she is defined and righteous and treasured and loved in Jesus. Long that for Ezra and all the kids too. But I long that for you as well. And Jesus says the heart of relationships is understanding that sin is not an outward thing, it's an inward thing. And don't look down on anybody until you see that the heart of murder is lovelessness. And the source of love is the gospel. And that gives you a radical new self-image. But then he moves on, point number two. Not just to the heart of relationships, but the importance of it. The importance of relationships. It's not enough just to uh, stop gossiping. It's not enough just to stop slandering or looking down on people or through people. It's not enough just to stop your resentment. You're still disobeying the commandment of sentence 21, says Jesus, unless when you see decay around you, relationship decay, you do something about it, says Jesus. When you uh, have a rotten tooth, when there is that smell and feeling of decay and pain, you know you need to go to the dentist. And Jesus gives two worked examples now about the importance of relationships in sentences 23 to 26. There's one of worship in the temple. There's one sentence 25, 26 in the law courts. And he says, if you are worshipping me, if you come prepared to worship me in the temple and you realise before a God of love who enjoys perfect relationships throughout all of eternity, that you, as there is something out of whack in your life, you know what you need to do. It gets very comical. You need to leave your uh, wild animal and give it to a mate and say, please look after this animal. You need to go three days back to Galilee, where most of Jesus' hearers were, whilst he's still holding your animal and doing what animals do, and come back. It's more important you go back three days' journey and sort the relationship out, and three days back and you worship me with a damaged relationship. Because relationships are very, very important. Reconciliation must take precedent over worship, says Jesus. It's that important that you do everything in your power to sort out the decay if there is decay in a relationship. You've not really begun obeying this commandment until you see it's your job to do as much as you can, whether it's your fault or not, to get that relationship sorted out. So go three days, forget the animal, tie it up, put the dove in, whatever thing the dove goes in. Go back, sort out the relationship and then come back and then worship me because it's so important that you do that. Isn't that challenging? That relationships are so important to Jesus. Do all you can to make it work. We're not children. It doesn't matter who started it. It was their fault. It was their fault. I don't care. Let's sort it out, says Jesus. And so go and repent, Matthew 5. Go and sort it out, Matthew chapter 18. Repent if your brother or sister has wronged you. Repent. 
Don't wait for the person to bring it up. I was once part of a church where there are relational weeds 10 years high. Those are high weeds and those are hard hearts because this didn't happen. No one wanted to say sorry. No one wanted to forgive. No one saw the importance of repentance. And Jesus says these principles are so important for you to get. There is an urgency about a body of Christ being united, about the church being together, one body, one spirit. And so relationships really matter. There's an urgency. So take initiative. Cross the room. Everyone's going to be looking about who's talking to who. Afterwards, go outside, get a quiet place, pick up the phone, do whatever is needed because there's an importance to relationships, says Jesus. There's an urgency. Take initiative and forgive. Forgive no matter how much it costs. Forgive no matter how much face you lose. You say sorry. Now, that's a severe warning, says Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, how can I do that? These relationships are actually higher than 10-year-old weeds. They're beyond that. They're between myself and my parents. They've wounded me. They've harmed me. They've hurt me. Where do I get the power and the strength to pick up the phone and call them, to go and see them when there's been so many tears and so much hardship? The answer is actually in the same place as the warning. Just as Jesus is saying, if you have a relationship that's not right, go and sort it out before you worship me, That's the warning. There also is the source of hope. As you worship, where will you get power to say sorry? Where will you get power to accept and to forgive the same place that there is the warning? By seeing who you are. By seeing who you are in Christ. If you see who you are in Christ, if you see how much you've been forgiven, then there is abundant resources, as much as the ocean, for you to forgive everybody that needs forgiving. By seeing who you are, if you don't know who you are, if your uh, standing is still based on what other people think about you, then you can be proud. You can be hard-hearted. You can refuse to forgive. You can wear woundedness like a badge of honor, which is so dangerous. You can behave like a Pharisee who knows their Bible, but whose heart is far away from the one whose Bible it is, the living Lord. If you believe that you are accepted completely and freely by grace, you have all the resources you need to forgive to love, and to let go of anger, to take off the woundedness. Let me close with this. I think it's a true story. If not, it should be. Years ago, there was a a czar in Russia. When the czars ruled Russia, he was an emperor. And uh, he died, and he gave the responsibility of looking after his young son to a friend of his, to another czar, who raised this young man, who gave him all he needed, and who cared for me, cared for him, educated him, clothed him, did the lot. He uh, made him one of the treasurers for a significant part of the Russian army. He became the accountant there, and his responsibility increased as he grew up. But the trouble was he got into gambling quite heavily, and he started to embezzle funds from the Russian army to make uh, good his debts, and they were considerable. Uh, One night he was looking in the books, and he realized as much as he cooked the books that the, the gig was up. He was going to get found out pretty soon and so he thought the best thing the honorable thing to do would be to kill himself so he got a revolver and he got himself as drunk as he could with the uh, with the idea being that he would shoot his brains out but the problem was he drank too much and he fell asleep and he didn't go through with it he passed out before he could shoot himself 
the Tsar that was looking after him, one of the things he loved to do was to dress up in the clothes of every man and go walking through the army to hear what was truly being said about him, to hear about his reputation, to hear what the honest man was thinking of doing. So he would dress up and he would go and listen to what people were saying about him. And he found as he went into the young man's room who is now passed out on the ledger, he found the gun and he found the young man and he realized what had happened. He looked into the books and he saw how much money he had taken and he saw how much money he personally has lost as the young man has embezzled it. He added up the debt and he wrote a note. I will make good this amount of debt. I will pay for it all. Signed, the Tsar. He got some wax, he melted it, and he impressed his signet ring upon it. When the young man woke up out of his drunken stupor, he found the note. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. Wait a minute. You mean the Tsar's been here, seen how much I've stolen, seen me in my disgrace and state? He knew what I did. He knew what I've done. And yet this note says that he's seen everything. He still loves me. He accepts me. And he will pay my debt. And he's put a seal to prove it. That's the gospel. Jesus has taken on the clothes of humanity. He dressed himself so that he was incognito. And he came from heaven to earth on the greatest rescue mission the world has ever seen. But he came, he came with Superman-like eyes and he can see into my heart and into your heart. And he knows every deed you've ever done and every thought you've ever thought, every bed you've ever slept in. And yet in Christ, he can look upon you in the gospel and love you and accept you and pays all the resources for your rescue. He gave himself for you. And if you receive him as your savior and rescuer, all your sins and wrongs can be wiped away. All your debts are paid for, just like that young man in Russia. And friends, if that moves you, that gospel story, that will enable you to forgive people because all your debts have been wiped out by King Jesus. And he looks on you and he loves you. Jesus says, what are you doing more than others? In sentence 48. We have much to forgive and much capacity to forgive others. Why? Because we've been forgiven much. What are you doing more than others? Let's pray.